0: You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno.
1: Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's story of a former Marine who was actually shot in the neck and lived to tell about it, we'll get to that coming up in just a few moments. First, our normal set of reminders. Please don't forget to follow us on all the social media sites: Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Keep up with what we have going on with the show. Any future guests, please correspond with us there as well. Love to hear from the listeners what you guys like and uh, which stories you really, really were into. So please give us some feedback. We'll take it there. Speaking of feedback, don't leave it. Don't forget to leave us Apple reviews. This helps grow the show and this hazard ground community trying to crack that top one hundred Apple podcast. We're going to get there eventually one day, folks. But can't do it without your help. So wherever you get Apple Podcasts, leave a review. Doesn't have to be a lengthy one. Could just be a short one sentence review. Give us five stars. And uh, we'll certainly appreciate you guys doing that. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab, and it'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. Hey, Mother's Day is coming up here as we get set to record this. So uh, if if when you're hearing this, it's past Mother's Day, find another reason. But any Amazon shopping you need to do, go to hazardground.com. It'll redirect you to Amazon. We get a portion of what you guys spend, and then we donate a portion of that back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Uh, and as well, it works from your smartphone and redirects you to your app. So if you save your credit card information in the app, it's really easy and really user-friendly. Don't forget to uh, go to HazardGround.com first whenever you do Amazon. Of course, Make sure you guys subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch all of our How's the Ground episodes and download the Kill Cliff TV app because you can watch our episodes there as well. Don't forget about our good friends and partners at KillCliff.com. Uh, the Clean Energy Drinks, as I face it forward for those watching, and make sure you can see the the label and logo. This is their CBD version of their Killer Cliff Sickle. It's absolutely fantastic. Big fan of Kill Cliff. I use their pre-workout and their post-workout, their Ignite, and their Recover. Absolutely amazing clean energy drinks, better than anything else out there on the market. KillCliff.com to get all of your Kill Cliff Clean Energy drinks. All right, this week's guest is a former Marine who got out of the Marine Corps after a four-year tour as a corporal. He had multiple deployments, including one to Afghanistan, and he is awarded the Purple Heart after being shot through the neck. He is currently the Chief Operating Officer of Merging Vets and Players, also known as MVP. He is Noel Huerta, joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Noel, great to talk to you, buddy. Uh, thank you so much for being here.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me, Mark. Appreciate it. I'm excited be part of this
1: uh boy i've I've interviewed many of your cohorts uh from mvp so it, it's great to hear your story finally uh and and kind of understand you know we spend so much time together talking about work and doing other things that you know we encourage so many other of people around us to talk about their story and we never actually talk to each other about our own so i'm excited to hear uh the the, the journey that you went on uh, and how you ended up as the chief operating officer of mvp but Uh, Back at the beginning, how and why did you get in the Marine Corps?
0: Um, You know, I think like like like, uh, many people and don't really have a don't really you know go to high school and then a lot of us don't really have what we're going to do after 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 high school really planned out. I was a pretty smart kid growing up, but you know I really didn't really believe myself. I didn't really see myself as a college kid, so um, I thought. uh, you know how well, how would be? You know, it's funny. At first, I wanted to I wanted to join the air force, and uh you know that would have been smart. Easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to join the air force, and uh you know, I was really I was excited. I remember going to the recruiting station and uh walking in there, and there was uh it was the air force, the navy, the marine corps, and the army force. Uh, so when I went in there, the uh, uh luckily the navy guy wasn't there, so I was I kind of just surpassed him, and I went. Straight to the Air Force. My 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 intention was to go to the Air Force because uh, my high school offered a junior ROTC uh, specifically for the Air Force. So you know, I was thinking, I was like, hey, let's, I'm just going to try to see you. walk in and get some information from each each of the branches, just kind of understand where I can be at, you know, service and what uh, what I can do as a career. So I walked in there, walked into the Air Force, uh, walk the Air Force office, and um, you know, it, people say like the first impression of somebody really sticks to you of how yourself you feel yourself how the future is going to look like the guy was a little bit overweight um he was, <laughs> he was a little weight wasn't really clean shaving you pretty dirty um but you know and then the first thing he did is before i even sat down he's like hey do you have a tat-? he's like um i see that you have a tattoo on your forearm and i'm like yeah you know i, I was dumb was a kid you know i I hang you know, the wrong people and I ended up with tattoo my forearm, which is, it was pretty big. It was about four or five inches. And, uh, uh, right off the bat, he just said, well, you know, you're not know, to qualify to the Air Force. You have to have a, you, you can't, your, your tattoo can surpass hit your, your, your size of your hand. And, um uh, I was like, off that bat, I just kind of turned me off and I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to walk the hell out of here. So I, I turned around before even you like, our, before I even did NASVAB or anything, he just straight kind of, so uh, dismissed me, so I walked in a different direction. Um, the army guy was talking to some other person in the other in the room, so it seemed like he, he was a little busy. The only guy that really stood out to me was the Marine that Marine Corps recruiter, which is pretty funny, but the guy was six feet tall, um buff, buff like athletic build, everything. First thing he came up to me was like, Hey man, do you wanna you know, uh I see that you wanna go talk to the Air Force guy. Next time just Next time, just tell your friends. Just pass that. That's just the place where we like like to get coffee and come pass by there. <laughs> and I was like, "What? Okay." So he's like, "So I went straight to him. He talked to me about uh, opportunities in the Marine Corps." Of course, during that time, uh, uh, the war of Iraq was was going on, and um, um, he he pitched it to me. He said it was overseas. He talked to me what I wanted to do. He asked me how I did my uh, my ASVAP pre-test, which I did pretty good. Um, I told him I did over. Almost over eighty, I think eighty five. I think I got on the sport. Uh, he's like, well, you know, I have those opportunities for you." But he asked me what I really wanted to do, and I said, "You know, I want to do, I want to do something that challenges me, and I want to do something that really makes a difference." Um, I, of course, he mentioned a couple of computer jobs, of different logistics opportunities, but I, you know, I wasn't really interested. I, when he brought up, I asked him, "What do you do?" And he's like, "Well, i was, I was a Marine Corps sniper. Um he did, he did upsell it pretty, pretty well, uh, talking about talking about it. But, uh, ultimately, like, you know, he told me, he's like, you know, what is the purpose of you doing the service? He's like, well, you know, I want to make a difference. I want to do something different than out of my comfort zone. I want to go out there and help people. Um, my whole life, I've been trying to find ways to do that. And I think this is a great opportunity to do that. And I, um, you know, I want to be in the grind. I want to be in the grind. I want to do the hard work. Obviously, the first thing you said was infantry. Perfect thing to do is, you know, infantry. And, um, you know, I wasn't really scared of, of going to war and I wanted, uh, opportunity to do something different. And I, like I said, it's something that inside of my DNA that really inspired me to want to fight for something that I believed in, which is the United States, you know, be growing up here my whole life, my parents were being descendants from Mexico. Um, I wanted to find, a way, find my purpose in here as, as a United States citizen. So I, yeah, I joined, joined the Marine Corps so that the history's there. From for I did infantry. Um, when I got infantry, I went straight to boot camp, San Diego, MCRD. Uh, I was there for uh, three months of boot camp. Uh, it was hell. I mean, I can tell you how much I wanted to quit. You know they don't, they don't they don't like to quit there. I mean, there's no there's no ringing of the bell or any of that stuff. You, you stick it in, just, just stick in there as long as you can. And of course, um, having people. I did stuff that I never thought my body could do um, there. And uh, going from doing three, four pull-ups um, in high school to doing over almost 40 pull-ups there after I got out of boot camp was pretty impressive for my own self that I couldn't believe I was able to capable of doing. So if I was capable of doing that or also doing, learn how to drill, um, what else can I do? So after that, I went to uh, school infantry. Um, when I did school infantry, they, they gave us an opportunity for us to become – Either O three O three eleven grunts because we're all open up as option. So they, they talk about you know going to rifleman, or you want you can go to weapons company and weapons platoon, or doing stuff out of like a uh, you know, type of weapon and stuff like that. So um, we took the test. Um, I did really really well in the test. Um, they gave me the opportunity to pick what option I wanted. Um, at first, you know, I wanted a machine gunner, but I <laughs> uh, I did see the mortar aspect of it. You know, I wanted to find ways to use. My brain a little bit more in, in a, in, in a calculations and stuff like that. So I, you know, I thought I was really good, good in high school with education. So I was just like, you know what? I'm going to become a mortarman. Um, I wanted to be a Ford observer fire direction center. I thought that was intriguing to me. Um, I like calculations. I like, I like to do, you know, brain a little bit more in there and, and the history was there. I, I did a, uh, I went to be a mortarman. I was 0341. Um, after, after, after the old school infantry, I was, I was sent to the worst place any Marine Corps, Marine can go. Um, as far as, you know, living there, um, it was 29 Palms. I thought I was going to end up in Camp Pendleton, San Diego, where I was going to have that nice, nice beach, nice, beautiful weather. But I ended up back to kind of Vegas after the Vegas feel, or the desert and mountains. Um, so it was, it wasn't that great. So, <laughs> So at first, when I got there, um, of course, I mean, during that time, 2017, 2017, until I mean, two thousand seven, was um, you know hazing was a big thing still there. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing before that it was even worse. Um, so when I got there, the first thing I got in there, um, they just the first drop was about three of us. Um, when we got there, they just I didn't know what, I, don't, I don't know what I was getting myself into. I, I thought boot camp and school retreat was, was hard enough. But when got to, when I got to the, to the two seven, second battalion submarines, um, it was, it was like walking in eggshells, man. Everybody was yelling at me, throwing at, you know, making me do pushups, uh, making me clean again, you know, uh, made me stand up for a right rest to PFCs, like same position, same literally rank as me, uh, asking to do certain things, the same thing. Well, it's because a lot of them had experience, a lot of them had experience and went to war and they've been there for a while. Some of them got demoted. Um, but, uh, overall, like, the experience itself was, it was a very different, uncomfortable uh, experience for me, uh, at the, the beginning. I can't say that that was, that was the entire, the entire time of the Marine Corps for sure. Um, as soon as it, as soon as I got through the ranks, as soon as I got to the training, um, I realized the reason why, uh, the Marines were so strong, uh, so strong and so try to break you as much as they can because, man, like, when, when you go to, when you go to war, like, All that stuff, all that stuff really, really helps you get through the hard stuff. So when we finished the training stuff with the, after we went to Mojave Viper, we did a bunch of gun drills, a bunch of stuff. I was attached to, um, Fox company. I was a, I was a line company, uh, mortarman. So I got exactly what I wanted. When I, I go into the grind, become a, a line company, uh, mortarman. You know, I wasn't on the, on the, on the, on the trucks with the 81s and the 120s in the army, but I wasn't, it was in the 60s, the little, small, little handhelds. And mm-hmm. So attached to that, I was attached to the uh, Fox company and um, Fox company was, it was the weapons platoon. We had a lot of different platoons in that, in that, in that company. So when I was there, um, uh, I had these, these really mean, uh, really mean, uh, seniors, we call them, uh, a guy named, uh, I mean, he's probably gonna hear this too, but Cobo Hina Hosa, I mean, he was, was the last going to host at that time. He was, was Hispanic like myself, Um you know, he was very, very tough, very tough on me, for sure. Making sure that I do everything right, every time I messed up, he you, you would just throw, you know, throw stuff on my, throw sand on me, it would just make me do push-ups, whatever, you name it. it we, he made me do it. You know, I, I never, I never thought of how, what that really was, I thought he was just playing around, and I thought that was, just, you know, he was just the way the person was. The other, the other seniors didn't really talk to me very much. It was mostly um, the majority of them were, you know, uh, white males. Um, I'm About the thing, I was the only Hispanic myself and some other um, uh, person in that weapons platoon, so it wasn't many. Um, so, so I got, I, I got, I got, uh, I got hazed a lot there in the military, and I think, uh, but it made me what I am today, and then. Once I once I was it was was all over, I once we actually got orders to go to Iraq, um, the training just commenced like crazy. Um, at first we thought that we were going to go to Iraq. It was supposed to be the last push of Iraq, um, but we got orders to go to um, Afghanistan. So we were gonna be the first battalion to go to Afghanistan. Um with data intelligence information said that we were gonna go out to train Afghan police. When I say again, train Afghan police. That, that's we were, that was that was our job. His mission was to go out, train Afghan police to be able to be able to protect their own country. What, um, what year was this, by the way? Two thousand eight. Okay, so two two, two thousand. Yeah, two thousand eight. So we were supposed to go out and uh, train the Afghan police two thousand eight. Um, but it was crazy though because two thousand seven. Still, it was get it was into tw- two thousand eight that we went to Afghanistan. So we well, were just there, kind uh, of we're forgotten
1: here. about at that point. Like the surge of Iraq was 07 yeah. and Afghanistan yeah. was just like this thing floating off on the yeah. side by the time 2008 had rolled around. And we kind of almost, you know, 20 years later, forgot it still, but you get the point. Like, you know, I mean, it wasn't really yeah. a big focus.
0: Yeah. It, it wasn't, it wasn't, we didn't have much information. Didn't tell it didn't give us much information of what we're going to go, what we're going to do. Um, we did a lot of training. We did to Mojave Viper. Um, we did, uh, Huma training. We did a uh, bunch of different gun drills. Different leadership traits, little, with different, uh, classes. We did everything possible to train our, our people that we needed to train to be able to go out to Afghanistan. It's going to be a different, it's going to be a different world out there. I mean, the Point on Palms is probably the most perfect place to train for Afghanistan. But I can tell you the, it looks just, it looks just alike. I mean, the, the mountains, the the rocks, the, the sand, I mean, everything about it was, was mostly identical to Afghanistan when we all went out there. So that we, we, we were trained pretty well to get out there. So once we did deploy, um, we deployed for over a year. We were extended, um, because of so much stuff that went out there. So I was attached to, um, a platoon, I think second or third platoon, and we were assigned to, uh, Nauzad. Uh, so uh, I was supposed to, it was in Southern Hellman, Afghanistan. So we went okay. to, we flew into Kanahar, in yep. Kanahar, we, Kenahar we we kind of went went to Bastion From Bastion, um I don't know what to think. They changed the name, but um, from there, we 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 spread out to our our ops. But before I get to there, one last thing is that when we were at Kenahar, we we got to experience this Toby Keith uh, that flew out that was out there, and it was fun. Most I have this episode of story. When we were out there, we uh, Toby Keith was performing. And it's an air force base. Uh, a bunch of air force people, aren't uh, the army guys instead of word. So, um, so what was funny is they had a that their own subway. That had an MR that like a, uh, it's called MRI, M- MR, MCT, whatever it's called. Whatever one of the one of the places where they go in and they do like they have coffee, food, whatever you yeah. name it. Yeah, you just kind of just kind of keep your mind off the war. MWR, MWR. That's what it's called. MWR. So yeah, <laughs> so we have MWR. We were we. The subway, instead of the subway, instead of giving you lettuce, they'll give you cabbage, uh, because there was no, there was no lettuce. So they gave no lettuce cabbage. in the Middle East. Yeah, I know. It, it was the most disgusting thing ever, but I mean, it's a subway. cuz Gazelle. Oh, so we, we, uh, we got some of that, whatever, but the, the Toby Keeper was performing that, uh, that one of those nights. Um, the Marine Corps, the, the Marines, like, you know, those Marines, the Air Force people were all on the front, the Marines were all on the back. We're like, damn, we got here a little late. We're always at like, the second, the second check. The stepchild that's in the back, you know, you know, you know, the air force people go in the front. They're lucky, you know, they get to experience the whole Toby Keith thing. You know, I didn't really know what Toby Keith was at that time. But, um, everybody liked it, so I was like, Oh, you know, listen to him, whatever. And it was a concert. Who cares? Who cares what was singing? Who was performing? Um, so when we're out there, we got incoming fire. We got incoming, uh, uh, water fire and, uh, it wasn't even close to us. It was just from far distant. We just, we just heard it. When that happened, everybody ran away. Like it was the most, it was a graphical scene, like in a movie where we ran away. When I say everybody ran away, the only people that did not run away was was instead of the Marines running away, they Ryan they're George. like, oh, everybody left, yeah. so let's let's go to the front. With <laughs> so so Kobe <laughs> Keith you know, was tackled down by some of his security guards. Took them in, took him took him to the to the back, and then they thought, realized the incoming fire was not coming here. The Air Force people came back, but the Marine Corps guys was already in the front. So we got to, so we ran into the front of the line, and we we're like, yeah. So we were experiencing this Toby Keith concert now in the front. And Toby Keith came back, and uh, the history was there. It was it was a fun night, um, but. From there, it kind of from there, it didn't get any better. For, uh, that was uh, probably yeah. the funnest night we had. After that, we pushed out to our fobs. We got to now that we were supposed to. We were, they were supposed to sank, sank, uh, there was a different area. that was supposed to be more. We sent out an, an additional uh, marines to a different location because we thought that the other area was going to be. So your platoon ended up being split. We did, yes. Okay. So Sanjin so uh, Sanjin was supposed to be the the, the top place. Where all the, where the Taliban were at, were hosting, they were doing, where they were causing the most uh, danger there, they were killing people, the, the civilians, whatever. It became the opposite. As soon as we got to Nowzat, we got fire, we got, we got, we got incoming fire like, from everywhere. It was, it was, uh, it was, we found... our I, intel was incorrect and it was actually a training facility for, for Taliban. So they were protecting NAWSAT, like, like with no like like the president like the like the White House and you know, out there they were just they were just doing everything possible for us not to get there. When we when we got to the area, um, the British and Estonia Marines were already out there. So the British Marines in the Army and Estonia uh, uh, Soldiers were were there. Like they kind of briefed us of what we're what we're gonna experience. There wasn't really a fog. We had to pretty much build one from the ground up. Yeah, uh, they they had a small little the British compound Estonia that we're sharing, but not much. So when we got there, they, they gave us a British Hey, you cannot pass the ridgeline line because after you pass the ridgeline, line, you get fire and we just we, we have to retreat. There's too much. There's too much going on. We, too much casualties. The first in May, the first fucking night, our captain or I don't know who gave him the orders, but. Besides, we should go out there and do a patrol past the bridge line. I, after the British and uh, the British and Estonia told us not to go there, we, first thing we did was go out there, we passed the bridge line, we started getting effect, and we passed the bridge line like nothing. We, 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 and we, we think about Marines, is just like, I mean, when they get, when they get that adrenaline rushing, they're still stopping them. There's no fear there. And, and that's all the training that we, that we've done, right? The boot camp, the psychological met, uh, w- warfare that we experienced at boot camp and SOI and in the fleet in the fleet. Um so when we were out there, we were just you know, we were just a paraman We were all young, right? We were all twenty one I mean not twenty one I'm not even eighteen. So what, we're let all me 18, ask you, when,
1: when they when you get the orders to go past the bridge line after you've already been told don't do that, it's going to end up badly for you, are you the Marines going, I don't care, we'll go kick their ass, or are you the marines going, this is a bad
0: idea? Like we were just told don't do this. <laughs> Well, I was a new guy, so I mean, I do whatever my, whatever my uh, team leader and them tell me to do, so I it was, it was a new guy, so I, yeah, but what I were thought you that thinking? that was standard. What, that was your,
1: what was your feeling? Like, did you feel
0: like it was a bad idea? <laughs> I was idea? scared.
1: Okay, that's I was, fine. I
0: was, I was fearful. I was like, my first patrol, so I was a little fearful out there. And, and I was, like I said, I was attached to a uh, uh, a platoon that, you know, there are a bunch of, a bunch of grunts, uh, 0311s, which is riflemen, and I was the only waterman. So myself and my team leader. So I have this giant, giant tube, 60 millimeter tube in my hand and, ca- and have a backpack carrying a bunch of rounds. Who are they going to aim at? They're going to aim at the guy with the bigger weapon, right? So they see a big guy with the big weapon and then they see the guy with the radio. So they aim, they're going to aim at those people. So the first thing they were doing is firing at us. Um, so we were, we were hiding behind like different, uh, walls uh, across like the, the compounds that were there. Get away from there! But the great thing about it is that once we did that, they knew that the United States was there. As soon as we passed that surplus, they knew the U.S. was there. We had radio frequency that we can so we can hear hear them on the radio saying and in uh, posture talking to other people, uh, other Taliban uh, leaders, even people in the civilian saying that hey, the, the U.S. is here. The U.S. is here. They're they're here. They're here. We have to make sure we're, we're doubling security. Whatever um from there man we lost we lost we lost countless people there man of uh, injuries people getting hurt um i think it was like a month later um uh, that's when i finally you know uh, i was a we had weapons we also had a weapons platoon also attached to us so we had a weapons team mortar team that 81s that were st- that set up their fob there. we put up our our foxholes and and uh we were sleeping on cots um we built our own like underground foxhole which is pretty cool and we we were there the 81s were there they had their fdc stuff i would keep keep in mind i was still with you guys so i couldn't really i can't be of fdc or fo which is for observer i couldn't do the calculations They don't trust a new guy that stuff so did you feel like you um, were smart enough to do it though was that? Did you
1: feel like you were a- capable and smart? Yeah, yeah, for
0: sure. I, mean, I was looking at the calculation. I felt like they were all off. I mean, sometimes we're off. The guy, the guy that was there. I mean, no offense to him. Like I said, I, mean, I think he was doing a great job. I forget his, forget his name, but it's uh, funny. I was there with it for a long time. I just didn't really, don't really talk too much because I you know I don't really have that rank. So I can't really speak to him. He was a sergeant, right? Uh, but he was in charge of the of the FDC of center and the the forum server center. So know Keith Branch is one of them, board observer. I mean, that guy's amazing man. If he hears this, I can tell you that dude just has gone through so much and has saved thousands of – a lot of Marines out there. And, uh, you know, he, he was a great inspiration. You know, but now, you know, a lot of that stuff affects you mentally, and I think that's what it's experiencing now, and I think that's what we all experience you now. Right. But you when I get to, to it well, – I was going to say, like before Mark.
1: you go forward, I, I wanted to ask you, you had mentioned that you had lost guys to this point before – Yeah. You end up going forward um, when that happens and you start to experience like combat in its worst form uh, yeah. for somebody like you who, again, you know, objective from the outside. You're a smart kid. You probably could have done other things, but you chose this, you know, a life of service in the Marines uh, for you, for your family, whatever. Uh, and, and then you're starting to see the the other end of the spectrum of. You know, uh, there there is imminent death around you. Are you ever second guessing the decision? Are you recognizing that you know that uh, combat is is unforgiving and and that you know may, may, maybe I should have used my brains for something else, kind of deal? Like, where's your head with all of it?
0: Yeah, I mean, my mind was my mind was like that. Um, I did think that uh, I made a bad decision when uh, when I was definitely. I mean, as soon as I got into the fleet, um, it was like I said, it was it was a hellhole. Was, uh, you know I was getting yelled at for everything I did I was telling how to how to dress I was telling how to how to you know how to act um making fun of how I speak some uh, Spanish speaker um again, just you know just making fun of the way I you know everything everything I do I mean, that's just the way it is but but I you know I it, when I when I got out of the war everything kind of when I went to Afghanistan everything kind of just that didn't that stuff didn't really matter to me like, that, that the the color of her skin the your nationality or background doesn't really, doesn't really matter to anybody anymore. You, yeah, you're fearful for your life. I think anybody, anybody as human being, right? We're, we're scared of, of the unknown, right? We're scared mm-hmm. of, of what's going to happen. Um, as soon as one guy got, sh- as soon as a guy got blown up an ID, like that made it real. Um, so when we started seeing people getting shot and, and injured, and it was a it was a pretty scary moment because we're starting to see guys getting sent back. And what the scary part about it, the most thing, is the Marine Corps is like, you know, when we do certain, like when we go there and we, we 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 take over an area, we start building the fog, right? But the problem is that a lot of our machinery got broken, a lot of our machines got broken, a lot of our our trucks to fill the, the the sandbags that we needed to protect the fog was broken. We had to do everything manually. So just imagine a bunch of tons of broken dudes just grabbing the the sand uh getting sandbags and, and filling them up and putting them as, as protection barriers from bullets and from fire. But we the entire deployment, we were never able to fill them fill them out. They were they were empty the majority of the time. So somebody would come and attack us, we really didn't have protection. The trucks that we were utilizing were truck we were unprepared in every single way. I don't know where the intel came from. I don't know. It might have been, I don't know, but I speculating where the intel came from. Are, are you losing we, faith in your leadership with stuff like that? You do because like you start losing people. You start losing people and then yeah. your, your, your t- leadership team, like the main people were, like, we lost our squad leaders like the first day, like a lot of squad leaders got, like got wounded. Um, we started going to the compounds. You think about it, Taliban Taliban are very smart fighters. Of course you can tell, you, you know that from, from fighting the Russians. I mean, they can't beat them, you know, because they go through the, they go underneath the holes. They come out they, they strategically and they mimic you. They mimic the way you you fight. So after, after you, they see that you, once you take a fire, your fires team goes to, goes to rush to a wall and strategically, strategically angles themselves to protect themselves. They put IEDs there. They put the string <laughs> IEDs in those places where they know that you're going to go. It's It's complacency, complacency, if what we do ultimately is going to ultimately get you there. So, but at the same time, we had some really great leaders. When I say Captain Chowhouse, uh, you know, uh, first, first Sergeant Rummel, I'm like just amazing, amazing leadership that we did have, and they were there with you in the fight. So the gunnies, the, the sergeant major, everybody. I mean, not sergeant major, but the battalion, uh, the, the, the commander, our captain was there, and our first sergeant was there. From battalion. so they were fighting with us alongside you know, Gunny Hendrick which was an amazing dude uh, was there you know, doing doing his work in the grind with us sleeping in the same same play locations that we were sleeping at so yeah you do kind of lose a little bit of fate but at the same time like they were so positive as far as what we could do and what we're capable of doing so when you have people like that around you it uplifts you makes you as brave as them you know and Right. So when we're losing mm-hmm. people, it just becomes kind of second nature. You're like, ah, it's part of war, right? We lose people. We go out there and whatever. But when we were out there in firefights, we were excited. We were like shooting people. Shooting, we're not shooting people, but shooting at a, a uh, at like sparkly lights, right? <laughs> sparkly lights somewhere in there. So we don't know who we're shooting people. We're not, like it's not Vietnam we're combat face to face. You have a a person with a. But at one time, you know, we had a. Connector bayonets to our rifles because we're at that point where they were getting so close to us where we had to connect our bayonets and we were ready to. It. It's funny about the bayonets, they were all rusted, and like so old, they haven't been used. And even though, even the mortar rounds are so old, the mortar rounds that we use, like there were white phosphorus and the red phosphorus, which have been used and are not even allowed to be used because of what it can do to people. It can melt you yeah. and it's a chemical welfare, so we don't use that. But, uh, we had it in case we, in case we got to that point where we needed to use it. But it was so old that when we shot rounds out of it, the rounds exploded to the top because exploded on to the top because they were so old and they never, they never been used and they just were stored correctly. So, you know, when this, 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 that happened, um, a lot of us, like I said said, the, the, the mortar, the mortar team was incredible out there. We didn't have any indirect help of fire. We were using the British 105, so which were like long range. Uh, rifles that would just shoot, uh, missiles that would shoot out to different locations that we spotted. We had people set up on, on mountaintops where our FO4 observer and a lot of the, uh, uh, Estonia and the British were up looking, make, make, look, gathering intel. Uh, once we have gathered a lot of intel out there, we, we start, uh, we start going different missions. We had six, I don't know how many, I don't know, I can tell you every week we had a mission somewhere we kept passing, surpassing every single spot. At one point, we had Taliban headquarters, which was we had to run through like countless fields to get to pass like, a rifle, a place where going would be a training facility for the, the Taliban. We got there. I mean, I could tell you, these guys' hearts were out there. Everybody's, like I said, everybody's bravery is out of this world. There's young kids, 18, 19, even 17-year-old kids protecting one each other was you can't even you can't even write. You want to write the perfect movie? That's the perfect movie right there. When you see it for your real life, and you see the war that's happening, and people, we have we were outnumbered. We lost about we lost about in the first month. We lost thirty five people. Wow. Oh. And we lost ten. We lost we lost ten people that were that, that were KIA in that first month. After the first month, it just kept growing from there. We had over over at the end of the whole deployment, we had over two hundred. 200 injuries, people that got injured, either wounded. Um, we lost about 60, about 60, about 50 or 60, uh, to KIA across all our battalions, uh, not all battalion across all our, all our different fobs that we were part of. Um, so in that. That was part of the, the injury that I got received. There was uh, I can tell you a little about that. Um
1: Yeah, before you get to that part, I'm just right after, are yeah. you wondering like at this point as you're seeing guys continually get hurt? like are you thinking like, Oh my god, I'm gonna die here?
0: Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I I had a satellite phone, I was able to use a satellite phone. Not that much because I um I was a new guy, so the new guys always get the last the last uh right. you know Ability to to use the phone. So um, when I actually was called back, I, I told my dad and my mom, and I, I was very fearful for my life. I did tell them, you know, at least if I, if I you know if I don't make it back, um, you know, I just want you know, to know that, you no, know, I appreciate everything you've done for me, and like um, you actually had that conversation with your parents. <laughs> yeah, I had to. I had to because I was I was very yeah. fearful. I didn't know what was going to happen.
1: Uh, the next day. You know, of- I have, I wouldn't, I never had that <clears throat> conversation. Like I didn't want to, I knew that that was the reality. Yeah. Um, and I didn't, I wasn't willing to write a letter. Like I just, it, it wasn't my thing. It was just sort of silent prayers that I would always say on a routine basis. But I, I don't, I never wanted my mother to worry, you know, like I never wanted my parents to worry, like to have that conversation with them and tell them, Hey, in case I don't make it back, like that's gotta be, did you ever talk to your parents after the fact about having that conversation with them, with what they were thinking?
0: Yeah, you know, you know, it's funny. Uh, you know, uh, growing up, you know, I never really seen my dad be like um, tearful or right. show much emotion. Right. So when when uh, before I left to Afghanistan, um, my mom, my mom is, is is a has a lot of emotion. So she's very fearful. She's very expressive. She knows how to express her feelings. So. For her, it was it was normal for, for express any kind of like fear or the uh, the unknown. For for my dad, when I when I left, be Afghanistan. He gave me a hug, and um, it was probably the first time I've ever seen him like tearful. So I think that was like to me that was like maybe he does think this is going to happen to me, right? So when that when that happened, and I, and I was talking to him on the phone. I did tell him, "I was like, hey, can you send me some care packages?" First thing you say, "Can you send me some monsters? You know, <laughs> monsters and and some." Uh, some got Cheetos and you know all the cool, all the good stuff that was out there in, in the United States that I know that we were missing out there. We didn't have anything. Ramen noodle soup was the biggest thing. Uh, we asked ramen noodle soup all the time. So when I was conversation with them, I would tell them like, "Hey, if I don't come back, like you know, I appreciate everything you've done for me, and like uh, I I I want you to know that I, I died doing something I love to do. I don't think it's going to happen. I'm not, you know, I'm not going as so many patrols as other uh, other people are." But if it does happen, you know, this is what I enjoy doing it. And I want you to be, I want you to remember me as that person, not the person that like you remember me leaving and like, you know, who I was in high school, what I was growing up is a person that was, that's willing to kind of put myself over, uh, put everybody else besides, uh, over myself. And I thought I had to do that because I felt like my whole life, I wasn't, I wasn't, um, living up to what I, what, you know, I wasn't really really, I stopped being religious when I lost a lot of my friends, you know, through suicide and, and, uh, stuff that's happened to them. And I just felt, I felt that I was, felt that God was giving me like God didn't, you know, God was punishing me in some way. So I, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to change my life and just, you know, be, be, um, in service to others. And I think right. that was, that's what that was about. That conversation was about being service to others.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting because did you know – did you internally recognize that transition had happened in you before having that conversation, right? I mean, because that's a yeah. pretty transformative thing. Like, you know, you were just so reflective in that moment where you sit there and you say, you know, uh I, I had a life, but it wasn't going where I wanted it to, and I'm not sure what, what I was going to be and who I was going to be, but somehow – Along the way, between getting beat up in boot camp and and you know pissed on in 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 school of infantry and at the fleet and everything treated like trash, somewhere this transformation happened for you that all of a sudden you recognize and realize that there's a greater calling and that's me to serve other people. Like that seems like at least I'm hearing it. Like you didn't really have that revelation until you had actually made that phone call.
0: Yeah, I did it, and the 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 uh, the maturity wasn't there. You know, I, I felt like I saw that maturity when I started, when I started seeing 17 year, old year um, olds, uh, fight for each other. You know, I think when I saw that bravery, it, it made me want to be as brave as them. So um, a lot of them didn't come home. A lot of them had families that, that had kids. I didn't have a, I didn't have a family as far as like a wife and a right. kid to go back to. Uh, so I didn't think about that stuff. I, 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 I you know, I learned I how to kid. I like towards the end of the deployment. That's when I kind of start to caring about my life. I said, "Hey, you know what? I, I do want to come back." <laughs> but it, when you initially don't know about having a kid, it's just for family. It's just like, well, you know, I have my wife, my mom, and my dad. But you know, it's 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 not going to hurt as many people. I mean, I haven't impacted that many people yet. To my to maybe just my family or my cousins and my uncles and my that. But as far as ever other people depending on me, there wasn't much dependability. So. I, when I saw people that were, like, for example, my cop mate, one of my cop mates, uh, he was a EOD, EOD sergeant, and, uh, even though we EODs, the, the, uh, the guy, the explosive devices, the, the guys that go out yep, there and sure. get IDs from the ground. Um, he actually called that call in the morning around seven, uh, I think it was like a five in the morning call that we uh, one of the sniper team found an, uh, an ID in the ground and it needed to be removed, um, cause it was in a place where we, we needed to, uh, you know, to, to do a patrol through. So the guy came out with the guy, the, 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 the night before, they was Staff Sergeant Strickland. A night before he, he was watching a movie and talking, he has his own personal satellite phone, he's a sergeant, lucky. So he was talking to his family back at home and he had a picture on his, on his computer that showed um, like his family's dogs and everything. And he we were watching a movie together from far. I was watching a movie from far. He didn't really, he didn't let me watch movie, So from far, I just kind of watching it, sleeping in. And, and, uh, the next morning, he, he had a call, like I mentioned, they went to the patrol. He didn't come back after that. You know, he, he got blown up. He, he, when he was taking out the IED, he, he was blown up in pieces. Um, he, when they were around seven in the morning, I woke up, I was, I was waking up at that time. We had a call on the radio. We had a bunch of trucks coming in. Um, the trucks came back in, and there was a bunch of like blood on the on the uh, on the on the trucks, and there was like people were holding pieces of, of remains in their hands, oh. bringing them back into the into the to the uh, to the fog. And obviously, that's when we all realized that stuff started, started tricking. They didn't make it. And it was in pieces. Um, basically they found him in pieces. Like everything was like he got blown up, he, he died. So it was it was pretty hard for that moment, that night, of realization, like, this is you know, I can really die here and I can you know this can really happen to me and like I don't wanna come back in pieces. That's not that's not the way I want my family to remember me. I, I can't even get a proper burial it, but I you wanna remember me that way. So that was kind of realization that was a little bit more scary thing is I saw that happening and like Everything really became real after that. We lost. That's after that is when I got um when I went to a patrol. I kept, I kept volunteering to go out more with the with the rifle companies because I was I didn't really want to stay much in the fog. I feel like staying in the fog really affected me more and more and more. But, but um, so th-
1: that's counterintuitive though, right? Like you realize you're yeah. going to die here, and yet you keep asking to go on more patrols, and not that you would necessarily avoid yeah. them. But it's one of those things where you don't have to raise your hand and go, "Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll do this one. I'll do this one." I feel like I needed to
0: prove myself, though. I feel like I needed to prove myself. I mean, I, I haven't done. I'm a I'm a new guy. Um, I got to show that you know they treated like I said. I I didn't get treated very well boot camp and SOI in the fleet. Um, so when I when they saw what I was what that I was willing to volunteer they saw that I was unfearful to to do everything possible to go out there for the mission. And everything changed. The personality of everybody, the way they saw me, the way they perceived me was very, very different. I mean, everybody trusted me more. I got treated more respectfully. Um, it, it was to me, that was that was the most thing is get people's approval to show them that I was there for to, you know, to protect them from the left and right of my brother and sister. And that, that was important to me is to show that, that that I was that I was willing to risk my life for them just as much as they were willing to risk of life for me. So when I was out there, like I said, it's that, that showed, that showed so much important for me. And when I was out there, that, that last deployment when I, you know, that, when I got wounded, um, that showed so much. Like I said, I was out there. I didn't even have to be out there and I was out there and I, I volunteered as a rifleman at that time. We don't even need to have mortars out there. I put my mortar, my 60 millimeter mortar with me on the, on that patrol, but I didn't really use it. The, for some reason, our, our driver had a saw. Uh, light machine gun, um, when I saw, I'm not really sure why he had it. I've never seen a driver have a, a saw, but I guess they made him, they made him the driver and he was driving everybody. So I, when we were, when we were out on patrol and we were on the, we were mounted on the, the vehicles, uh, we were pushing out to a specific compound where we thought that there was going to be weapons and all that stuff. When we pushed out to that fob, um, the compound out there, we, some reason somebody called for us to dismount. Um, I'm not really sure why. I really believe, believe is they're trying to protect the trucks because the truck, we didn't have any trucks out there. So we, they told us to dismount and to, to have these, we had these, uh, the, the assault men, like, uh, had to, had these mine sweepers because they, the mine minesweepers and then they had engineer, combat engineers do mine minesweepers. So they were using the minesweepers in the front, whatever, to make sure there were no, no stepping IEDs. We were dismounted. Then all of a sudden we got a freaking attack from everywhere. Like it was, it was, now this all is over the time, the
1: this is the time when you, when you got injured, right? This is, yeah, is. first deployment or second deployment, just for clarification. Uh, first deployment. First deployment. Just okay. So, still seven, first deployment, yeah. How far into the deployment are you?
0: Um, we're about, I think, uh, three to f- three to four months, I think. Okay. Close to there. So, so you're about halfway through for, three months,
1: th- halfway through for marine deployment, right? Well, no, we were there for a whole year. Oh, so so, you were there? Yeah. Way. Okay. So you we mentioned that. Okay. Yeah. So, so, yeah. Just to recap, I just want to, so the, the, the viewers and the listeners can, can yeah, understand. So, um, you volunteer for this deployment and you go as a rifleman, not even as a mortem which your job is trained. Now, obviously at that point in time, they had to trust you, right? Because they were willing to give yeah. you a job that you completely didn't, weren't, I don't want to say weren't trained for, but you get my point. It wasn't your yeah. primary job.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, in the Marine Corps, we're all riflemen, right? right exactly. Like sure, right. So we got trained in a marksmanship and I knew I wasn't the best shooter in, in, in the Marine Corps, but um I, I knew where to aim and I knew how to like do what I needed to do in order to, to know, uh, if I ever get in danger or if somebody that shooting back at me, I shoot back at them. So yeah, so yes, yeah, so they needed people. Like I said, they we were losing people. So they were short on, on, on people that riflemen didn't need out there. So, yes, I volunteered for the, for the patrol. Um, so when I went out there to patrol with them, it, it like I said, went south really bad. Uh, we, got, we got left. We got uh, ambushed um, from the from front. At first, it started from the, from the front, and then we started getting shot. We started getting contact from the right and the, the left. And then on the rear, there was a – on the rear, there were actually our people. They were shooting at the other people. So we thought they were firing behind us. So we're keeping on the radio, we keep saying, who the hell is shooting behind us? And, uh, but we were, we were like, we we're all crazy, we're all over the place. The two, four, the, the gunners were starting to shoot people in the front, they were going crazy, they were weapon weapons, they were yelling, were laughing, they were shooting people, and I'm like, from far, like I said, it was a uh, glare, I didn't see people, I didn't see many people running around, I just saw blares of lights out there. So, uh, one of the guys that went, when we dismounted, one of the guys lost his, his radio. We lost his radio, and he was behind us. And he's like, "Hey, you can't find my radio. Can you come back and help me look for my radio?" And it was behind us, so it was like, "Okay, whatever." I want to go back and help him find that radio. When we got back to the radio, we couldn't fucking find the radio. And then all of a sudden, as we get close to a truck, one of a guy, one of the, guys, one of the guys, his name is Reinhardt, Reinhardt, I think Reinhardt, one of our one of our senior senior lance corporals, he got shot in the femoral, so he got shot in the leg, the femoral, and he started bleeding out. And you start seeing, start seeing like bloods, yeah, burning out. So he was in the ground. The corpsman ran across the field. The corpsmen were incredible. The point ran out there, grabbed him, stopped the bleeding, whatever. And then all of a sudden, you know, I think I took the 249 saw from the, from the, the right, the rifle is, is terrible. When you shoot, you're like, ah, this is boring. Dude, 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 so I put it on burst. Because in the M sixteen <laughs> have have a, a burst now, yep. had a burst on them. So I put the burst. Huh, huh? It was still kind of boring to me. I was looking to of shoot. I felt like I shoot nobody. So I took the two four nine saw from from the from the driver, and I start going on the prone and I try to start use it shooting it. But they were you know they, they, uh, all of a sudden when I when I went up to aim, I had the I saw like a white or well, like I felt like a white. Light, whatever, sparkled through me and it it hit, uh, it hit the, the, the RCO. It broke the RCO and it hit the truck and it bounced back and it, and it glazed me, but it, the enough glaze took the chunk of my, of my neck meat off. So it was a chunk of meat coming out of my neck, but it, so it was, it went down the cavalier and it swung down to okay, my hold
1: neck. On. Explain this again. So a bullet was shot past you, but initially missed and then... It hit the RCO. RCO. Okay.
0: Yes, yes, yes. It missed. It missed The you. RCO hit. got hit. Uh-huh. It hit the Humvee. Hit the Humvee, right. Because the Humvee actually hit the exhaust. So the exhaust went like crazy. So you start seeing the exhaust going up, and then all of a sudden, I felt bleeding behind my, my neck. Well, I felt... I felt very warm, warm very yeah. warm, um, very warm. Like like, warm, like somebody wet. just uh, iron it, <laughs> stung me with it. Oh, like a giant bee just stung, stung me, whatever. You, right. uh, so it 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 just went, and I saw my Kevlar. My Kevlar had like a giant like a uh, uh, the rib piece of the of the Kevlar piece off of it because the Kevlar is not meant to 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 stop a bullet. It's right. meant to ricochet ricochet, right. ricochet bullets. But it was a it was a rifle. It was a sniper rifle. The seventh six it was a big, pretty big round. Yeah. Um so the the round, you can see like the round cut just blasted through it and then it went down to my neck and it took it could have it, it, it should have easily killed me. It would if the RCO wasn't in my face, it would have shot me right through the eye. That would have been it. So the, the RCO blocked my ricocheted the ability for me to go through my neck to uh, through my eye to ricochet to the side of my neck. It's of my collar to my neck down. Wow! So you're talking a matter of millimeters. Yeah, like it would be like really, really close. And I start, you know, obviously my, I didn't recognize that I got shot yeah. until because I was like in the zone, I was trying to shoot people, whatever. And then when I when I started kind of feeling like stuff dripping, I went back on my neck and I looked, I felt a giant hole in my neck. So I, I that's where I start kind of panicking. And then I fell, I fell to the ground and I was bleeding like, like, uh, well, I felt I was bleeding like nonstop, but I wasn't really bleeding as much as I thought it was. And then I got on the ground, I, I kind of start, you know, saying one of the machine gunners that was on the, the, one of the machine gunners that was on the turret tried to jump off the turret to try to help me because he saw that I got shot. His name was, uh, 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 Louis, Ortiz, it was Ortiz, Pastor Ortiz. And he he uh, was trying to jump out the jump out the turret tur- to try to try to try to help me because there was no there was no corpsman around. So the corpsman was helping the other guy remember, that got shot in the moral. Yeah. So he was trying to help him, and then finally the corpsman just kind of some other guy came in, because a lot of us were trying to combat lifesavers. so we don't to stop the bleeding he too So one of the guys came and we I don't know who it was, grabbed me, uh, you know, threw me in the threw me in the truck. And um, you know, start patching me up on my neck area. But my eye, I couldn't see out of my eye because it's hurt, the the uh, I thought my eye was shot off to be honest. So I couldn't see because the the RCO it hit me like it struck me in the eye, so I couldn't really I couldn't see So when the the, the pressure of the round pushed it back and it hit me in the eye. So I couldn't see, I thought my eye was shut off and then my neck was I thought it was more severe than it really was. And they threw me on the truck, we didn't have, we didn't have helos, we didn't have any of that stuff. So we, 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 threw me in the, in the compound of the truck, threw me back and then dropped me back off to the, we had an ICU there, like a small little ICU, like for emergency reaction team for like doctor, like, doctor on staff basically. So we had a doctor on staff patching you up. I couldn't see out of my eye for like days, for like weeks. I was, I was blind for like a, for, like, a couple of weeks and stuff like that. And I had blood, uh, I had a, uh, a very severe pain on my neck, my back. I couldn't really move very well. Um, but I never actually got. I never. They asked me if I wanted to go. If I wanted. To, if I wanted to to be sent back to uh, to to bashton to see a real doctor, and then also back to Kennebhar, and then basically leave deployment. Basically, and um, at that moment, I was just like, I didn't really want to. You know, I, I I wanted to get some kind of payback. I don't know. I don't know what the hell. When you're in a drilling rush, you just want to go back out there again and yeah. do it again, and um, after I had like a after weeks there, I was just like, "Nah, shit, fucking enough, fuck this, you know? Yeah, I think I'm done." Yeah. <laughs> and but but yeah, so but yeah, that's what happened. And then then uh, you know, I got um, after that, I, I um, we be there for a, we were there, we got extended for a year. We did a lot of freak, we lost a lot of people out there. Came back, and the history was after that. Came, after we came back there was nobody to come to. There is no, I mean, just, you know, when you come back, you felt like everybody was there to like praise you. Thank you for all you did. You know, you're so excited to get back from, from deployment. You got shot. Incredible story, blah, blah. But it, you know, it really isn't that red cutting ceremony that you expect when you get back. Right. And I can imagine the people in the Vietnam, when they came back, nobody gave a help, what you did. and, when you come back here, war. I mean, yeah, you have your family, immediate you family there, but like nothing was the same. You couldn't, you you couldn't, you couldn't get out of that mentality that something was good that that you couldn't, you can't transition. It was a very difficult way to transition. out. that's the reason why we, we you know, we as combat veterans, is very difficult. After you see so much, I think you see so much. How do you go back into reality? And you're like you appreciate everything, like even hot water. You appreciate hot water. We had cold water, well water that we had to, that we had to use when we are deployed. So when we came back, we we're trying to, we we're trying to, uh, go back into society. It was very difficult. So after that, I became, after that, the history was there. I became a squad leader, uh, for the next deployment. We were supposed to go to Afghanistan again, but we, we, we didn't do, we didn't. We ended up on a, we ended up going to a 31st new And I think, to be honest, I think that that's what caused a lot of our, Mental health to go down under because Wild. we thought that we were trained to become leaders and to lead the next, the next, the next more young junior Marines to a war that never happened. And when that war never happened and we went to the 31st new, we didn't do anything. All we did was party and train some, Af- some, some Thailand and Marines out there that we trained. We did like a lot of Hilo company. We did a lot of, uh, you know, Water exercises, a bunch of stuff that you know you would never do in your life. It was great training, but we didn't train to go to we didn't go to war. So a lot of the squad leaders were replaced by people that were in the embassy, people that have never deployed in their lives. So you come but you come in the war and you have guys that are coming as corporals or sergeants or replacing our, our lands corporals that were that fought in the war. So after that it just it just it really I think it affected so much. From there, we started losing people with mental health to suicide. Um, left and right, we lost. We're now over 70 people that killed themselves as our deployment. More than we lost in Afghanistan in that 2-7 deployment. That's, so That's
1: insane. Yeah. like You lost more people to suicide post-deployment than you did on deployment.
0: Yeah. We lost more people to suicide by far. Wow. And... Not even, even even the guys that didn't even go to Afghanistan. The people that were, that we were, that came into the drop before us to go to 31st new. Those people, one of my best friends took their lives. Because he felt that he was, he never deployed to Afghanistan. So he was never, he can never be that same, the same, stand as tall as the guys that, that trained them. Sure. That, so he was never able to prove himself. How come, how come you didn't?
1: succumb to suicide
0: well like i said man I, um i think everybody has those thoughts um especially when you get out of the marines i mean when i was getting out of the, when i was about to leave the uh infantry um i got transferred to uh to military police be an mp uh, when i was an mp there um you know I was i was kind of you know doing that transition so i could be a cop right uh, i wanted to be a cop san bernardino that was my kind of or go back to Vegas to be a cop, or go back to Salinas, where I'm from, uh, Monterey, California, and become a, a police officer there because I you know I went through a lot of bad things there. So, but when I was an MP, I realized right away that I, I, I my PTSD and my my uh, I couldn't do it. You know, I, I was at night. I had like I was I was very fearful for the night. Uh, like for example, like cold wind and like air blowing in my face. I felt like it brought me back to war. It brought me back to 20 on Palms. It brought me back to the, to the gun drills. It brought me back to that life. And I was very, it was very difficult for me to get that transition piece where I wasn't able to be like, you know what? I can't be an MP either. No, I can't even be a cop. Well, how am I going to be a cop? if I can't even be an MP. So I started kind of going down under from the being an MP that, like, no, I, I didn't do so well there. Uh, it was great that I did it because imagine if I would have been you know, to be a police officer at the police academy and do all that stuff. And, And and you know and and uh, have a gun and and do all that stuff to pull people over and you know I can't even pull up when I when I was an MP I pulled over some lady and uh, the lady the ladies the lady um, didn't smoke pot but uh, the car smelled like pot and because the the son borrowed the vehicle the, the day before it smelled like pot so we the MP guy the sergeant guy he decided to. And I'm telling you, man, this badge thing is like, they feel like they have so much power behind this little badge and what they, how they can treat people. So on they true how they treat this lady was the most messed up thing I've ever seen. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, they told her, they was like, Hey, well, you know, it smells like weed here. So you must have weed in this car. So I told her to take the lady, this older lady, man, like 60, 70 year old lady. Um, they pulled to the side. They told her, Hey, you had to step out of the vehicle. We're going to bring the search dog. So we brought a search dog. The dog ripped apart the entire car, ripped it apart, ripped the, the seats off their, everything. And they, we didn't find any pot whatsoever. And this lady was so upset and said, "Why you guys ripped my, my car apart? Like my son probably used it before. I mean, I, I don't do pot, whatever." We didn't even give her ability to talk. We told her shut up. I stayed quiet because I wasn't was training, so I don't really know. So. And I with a guy was was ripped apart thing and then after that I told him, you know, have a nice have a nice day. After the car was ripped apart. And I was like, This is not what the, this is not what I what I want. You know, pulling old ladies up, giving tickets, you know what? That's not what I want to do. Um so when I did after that I, I left, I moved to California. I went to uh I wanted a fresh start. So when yeah, I, I just recently got married, I just I met my wife. I um right after Afghanistan, I met my wife and um and I asked her to the Marine ball. It was pretty funny because, like I said, I uh, asked her through third party, and uh, she asked, she, she accepted. Obviously, a lot of people want to go to the Marine Corps ball. I'm like, yeah, it's awesome. How these cool medals, that all these ribbons, so it was really impressive. I felt like I was going to impress her with all these medals and all this great stuff. Saw so these uniforms, awesome dude. So it was the best thing ever. And then, you know, when we got married, it all uh, she she did a lot for me. And then, but. Everything was going well to the end when I was when I was transitioned out. We decided to move to California, to Marietta, California, to do start a new life. Just not not go back to Vegas, not go back to Cal- to Monterey, to none of that stuff. Kind of just start brand new. It was the most toughest thing to do, man. I couldn't find a job anywhere. I couldn't find nothing. I could, I put a resume together. I couldn't get a job anywhere. I put I put a Marine Corps. as My first thing so I thought that was the best thing ever right there. So I put that in my resume. I put, I, I applied a couple places. Nobody would take me. Nobody would call me back. So, um, I decided to go to school because I, when you go to school, when you get a GI Bill, you get money. So a lot of us were like, ah, I'm just going to go to school just to try it out, see if they like it. I don't know. I wasn't even thinking about going to school anymore, but I, I got into school. I moved myself to University of Phoenix, uh, whatever. I, I tried to, I could have gotten to a university. Yes. I have, I had the grades. I had the ability to go anywhere, uh, but I wanted to work. So how do I work? Be a busy schedule, do an online university. And but the good thing about University is they have campuses. You know, you guys should go to campus and actually attend the classes. So I attended the class once a week, which is great. You can work all the you can work all you want, go once a week, and then you can do each of the classes, get your credits. So I did that. Um and I got a job, do the security guard job that's some company called Signal Eight security.
1: Um I was making like
0: eight bucks an hour. Huh. Eight bucks an hour. I went from make, being a corporal to, I mean, it wasn't the best pay in the Marine Corps either. So when I got out, I was making eight bucks an hour. And living in California, is San Diego or Temecula, Marietta area, making eight bucks an hour, making eight bucks an hour is, is, you, may well
1: is you may as well be homeless.
0: You might as well be homeless. So the, more the, the money where I was getting the money was was my, my BAH. So I got from basic allowance for housing from the military when you go to school, you go to college when you go to enroll in college. So I enrolled in college. So I. Got that money, it was receiving like 2100 bucks because that's the highest you can get from California. So it was the best. So I received that money. When I was receiving that money, that's how I was paying my rent. My rent was almost $2,000. Okay. Making eight bucks an hour and my wife doesn't have a job, it was outrageous. So I was, I really, I really at that point was, was feeling very, very uh, insecure about myself, making that shit, that really bad money. And then, and the other thing is I was, a, had, you know, was going through a, a, a custody battle for a mother or daughter. So having that part of that and had to pay child support to that because I didn't know, you know, what was deployed overseas. And, you know, apparently judges don't really care if you're overseas and they'll just put child support on you. are like, okay, put child support on him. He's not here. What's, how does that work? I mean, so when that happened and I was paying child support, I was doing that. I couldn't get a job anywhere. So I decided, you know what, my wife was really, really going through a mental health breakdown. Myself too, to be honest. And we decided, you know what, we need support. We need to get the hell out of here. We we, so we decided to move back to Vegas. We moved back to Vegas. Uh, I was able to get a job with a security company. With that, I was able to get a job at the. I applied for uh, a federal, uh, federal, federal, federal federal job uh, with ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement. Mm-hmm. So I did that. I, you know, it was different for me to cop. It was just doing doing something different, you know. Um, you know, I speak Spanish, so it was you know. I thought that was gonna be a perfect role for me to be able to help other other people that were didn't have you know that and uh, dealt to help in a different way. Um, so the job itself was was pretty bad as far as like I had to you know I had to learn how to drive a bus, so I had to get my my uh, CDL, so I got my commercial driver license. Once I got that, I got my. my Got my driver's license. I became a, a bus driver, and I I had to transport people from police departments to different police departments, dropping them off. That's when it really hit me. When I I felt bad for people. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the hell. Why I was so soft. You know what I mean? I was in the Marine Corps, and then all of a sudden I was so soft picking people up. But that's when I finally got my break. I got twenty six bucks an hour. Finally, I'm making twenty six bucks an hour, right? But I was only working 30, 30 hours, and I was working at midnight, four a.m. Midnight to four AM, wow. four AM to six AM. Was a terrible times. So, and then I had to come back in the afternoon, like around four, to pick people up at the at in the afternoon. So I had split shift, and I was only working 30, uh, 30 hours. My wife finally got another job. my wife kind of a that job, um, you know, doing something that makes more money, getting tips in the service industry, which is awesome. She was making way more money now. I was making a little bit more money. Moved from one bedroom apartment to a two bedroom apartment. We, I finally got custody battle with my daughter after so much stuff that I went through with her. Um, so everything was going, going really well after that. you know. It was, and then in college, I was almost close to finishing my bachelor's degree in computer science. So I transferred over. Um, so I got my bachelor's degree in computer science and um, finished at the University of Las Vegas. I was able to finish all that. Great. It was awesome. And everything was really looking my way. I finally got my break. I got into the IT room. I wanted to do something. That nothing related to law enforcement, nothing related to, to going out there and pulling people over. Right. So I stopped doing ICE because I couldn't do it. I thought PTSD was too bad. So you know what? I'm gonna sit behind a computer desk. So I did that. You know, I went and, and got a job at a surveillance company just to try to get into the IT realm and casino business. So my friend, one of my friends, got me into the job. He was own a security company. He got me a job in working IT help desk. I worked at IT help desk uh, for about a year, and I moved. Through the ranks really, really fast. I went through, I was the only Marine infantry guy in the whole company. Everybody in <laughs> college, everybody did all this stuff, all these great things, man. All these people had ex- went to colleges and all these education. And I'm like, I just got computer science barely, but I had, to, I had to go to war and had to do all this stuff to get here. So I finally got there. And I was making 18, 15 bucks, went back to 26 to making 50 bucks again. 15 bucks working helped us. And you know what? It was a, it was better than eight bucks an hour, a security guard job. So I did that, 15 bucks an hour. Um, I grew through the business like crazy, man. I went, I went through making help desk to application service, uh, application support, uh, running as a manager at a company. I moved to a different company. I became the tech lead. Um, I became a manager, senior manager, a director. i got to always the director role now where I'm at the company. I could have technically been the CIO of the whole company by now, but. You know, something was missing. Something was missing when I was doing all these things. I still felt I still felt very suicidal uh, as far as we're like secure. I felt like something was still missing. When we talked about that conversation about how how you felt after the military and how you feel, it feels empty. It feels voided. It feels like something was missing. Like I felt like I wanted I wanted that whole barracks feeling still. I wanted to enjoy my friends with my brothers and sisters. I wanted to be, have that fun time drinking the fob and listening to music, listening to uh, Live Your Life after we got out of the deployment. And that was the first thing we listened to was uh, uh, Live Your Life by Rihanna, which is hilarious. Um, Mm -hmm. T.I. Rihanna, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that was the first song we came back to. So I was so excited to come back. And that's what was missing for me. I felt like every day I felt, even though I had my wife and my daughter, I felt like they did not see me as that same superhero that they saw in uniform. And I felt that uniform defined who I was. So everybody was see me as this really great dress was really nice. And in this uniform, my parents really felt proud of me. And then when I got out, they didn't see me in, in that uniform anymore. They saw something different. They saw some guy that felt he was, I don't know. I felt like he said, he oh, was depressed. My wife would always be like, what's wrong with you? What's, what are you doing it better? You're doing better now. Um, I just couldn't. I couldn't be vulnerable to people. I felt vulnerability was was a weakness. Just by talking about how weak I felt, inside. And you know, my my daughter was growing up, so I didn't want her to see me as a weak soul or a weak weak person. So I I hid everything inside of me. I hid everything inside of me as much as I could. I talked to people. Uh, people in the room were deployment. Some guy in Denver reached out to me. Denver Morris. Uh, it's funny because I, you know, I didn't know him in the military very, because he's a rifleman. Rifleman and weapons people just don't really <laughs> stick close together very long. So we, we were, I, you know, we have our own, our own cliques in the military. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he was a rifleman. Uh, he, I saw a post that he was coming to Vegas. He was coming to Vegas, like, hey, I'm going to Vegas. To be honest, I, I mistaken him for a different Morris, that Morris. I thought, I don't know who he was. So I said, I said, hey man, you're in Vegas? Hey, but, you know, I'd we'll love to catch up. You know, we're through seven. Let's, let's hang out. <laughs> that was when we hanged out. It was the weirdest thing ever because he was telling me like, you know, he, he had hundred percent disability and he was telling me he was still miserable. You know, he was telling me about disability, how to get a disability. I didn't know anything about disability until I, I talked to him and I was like, yeah, I should, I should file for disability too. I have all these problems. So long story short, we hanged out. We did it. We went through this, 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 club. We hanged out. We hanged out with some other two seven guys, uh, that were there. And, um the week later passed, his, his posts got very, very dark. His posts got very dark. He was start talking about like, you know, you know, he's not good enough. You know, his, his dog is going through some, uh, you know, these health issues. He was going, his sister was very concerned with his health and. He decided to take one day, uh, take, take one day of his, uh, uh, take on a joyride and try to end his life, right? Um, but I did express to him like how I felt and how I, I sometimes wanted to drive my vehicle off the mountain and just die. And I was trying to find ways to just find a ways to do it, but I felt like I had to bring people that depended on me to take my own life. But if I didn't have my, if I didn't have my daughter and my wife, I think it would have been, it. I mean, that was just, been, to me, I felt like nobody was dependent on me and I felt, I felt too much pain. I felt too much pain inside of me that I wanted to go away. So he, I knew how you. He he, I know how he felt. Right, felt that he had nobody. So I understand that he had no. You know, he had no, a no wife, he had a no kid, all his dogs. So when he was going through that, I was in the phone call with him the entire entire drive, the majority of the drive, while he was compensating of uh, uh, you know thinking about killing himself, mm-hmm. driving his vehicle and driving and, and you know driving straight forward and. From there, you know, we called the California Ohio Patrol. I called his sister. I talked to his sister. Uh, they found him. When they found him, luckily he didn't die. He he overdosed. And he was he almost overdosed on some pills. He they found him. He was put into a, a an institution, uh, you know, to get to rehab. You know, get the stuff going right head. The history is there. The history is there, from there, where uh, Nate showed up. Uh, Nate Boyer, who's a Green Beret ex Seattle Seahawk uh, was doing some type of film or something uh, of people transitioning out of service. Um, he spoke to, he met Denver there and I guess that Denver and him kind of had a conflict where he came into the high, he came in there trying to film people and obviously we don't want people filming our fucking house where we live. So we, he they had a conflict and Nate had a conversation with Denver about having a, starting this group of people like uh that talk about vulnerability. We kind of laughed at, we kind of, he laughed at that idea. Obviously I did too. I mean, when he talked to me about it, he said, what, what do you mean vulnerability with, with professional athletes? What? <laughs> with guys that make millions and millions of dollars? You mean those people? We, we, we don't, we don't relate to them at all. So when we went out, when he, he told us where the, the, the gym was at, um, I drove out there and we went to a performance, some gym, um, some yellow pink, I'm sorry, some pink, building, um, it was like, it was, it was weird. And we walk into a pink building and uh, I was like, I thought I was going to be like, I don't know, killed in there or something that. You were getting think, punked. Getting punked or something, <laughs> yeah. So I did, it was a bunch of like athletes, you know, different different athletes, Bradley Couture, all these different athletes. I was a little bit, you know, obviously a little bit starstruck there. I was going in there, but I, when we start talking about our feelings about that huddle, it was just, a, if you did the workout, the workout and then ever, and after that we just sat down and was like, all right, who wants to, who wants to talk? Saying, you know, basically who wants to talk? It's like, nobody. All they muted. And you know, in Denver, Denver was, Denver was very difficult to open up a story. And you know, now he doesn't like, he doesn't he doesn't like, with no problem. But at that time he did feel vulnerable. And he didn't feel like he can open up a story. And, um once people started opening up to each other, it, it, the history was there. I mean, like they, Everything really stuck to us as how human beings can do something for such a long time. And then when it takes away from you or a uniform gets taken out from you or you just you're out of that uniform, you feel broken. You feel that you feel like nobody looks at you the same way. anymore. And that's how I felt. I felt my wife and my daughter never felt the same way for me. I wasn't the same athletic guy anymore. I wasn't the same guy that was running uh, P, P, uh, you know PFTs that we call them. Mm-hmm. Uh physical training. Um we had to do uh three miles twenty eight minutes under we had to do twenty eight minutes. Uh well I do three miles under twenty eight minutes. Right. Um and we had to do hundred push ups hundred hundred sit ups and then we had to do twenty pull ups. And all that stuff was was, was easy for us in the military. I mean we're physically in good shape and all that stuff. So we we didn't feel that Superman. We felt like Superman, right? We felt like Superman morale. We were out. we Taking that, we feel like like, uh, like Clark, when we're, when we're out of group, when we feel like Clark. Uh, just like, you don't feel that same way. You don't feel Bruce Wayne, like when he takes off his uniform, he's this rich guy, whatever. He's this rich guy and nobody really takes serious, really takes serious, doesn't take, you don't know, we'll look at him as a vigilante superhero. But that's how we all felt. We felt like we were nobodies. We felt like we were thrown to the side. The military didn't really help me transition out didn't show me how to transition out. I didn't know how to transition. I had to find my way to transition out. Taps program is a joke. Hopefully, somebody hears it here. It is not, it is a, a week long of random people coming in and, and telling you about security guard jobs. I don't want to do security guard, but I don't want to be a police officer. You know, I don't want to do something else in my life. So I did the opposite. I became a nerdy ass guy going to school, for computer science, and do something else. So from there, you know, the history was there. You know, we opened up LA and then we went to Vegas. We open up uh, MVP and the program didn't have a name. There was no name. There was no MVP. Uh, we, there was, it was, there wasn't even a logo. We created a uh, created some random logo that had like a picture of, that had a picture of, uh, that I put on, I took off the internet of like a UFC fighter bending down like this, the head down with, and I, Took a soldier picture and it put them together. Superimposed, so, right? Yeah, sold the picture. And they were like, oh, fuck, let's just use Nate's picture. So we used Nate's picture, uh, for the logo. So his picture when he's holding the gun up, like that, with the soldier, then we added the soldier on it, that's kind of a, the, the, the thing happened. And in the logo with we the like chevron, it looks like a chevron. Mm-hmm. It looks a backward chevron. And so it's, uh, <laughs> we're like the little stars, that signify the military. So we put it there, and then you know, initially it was just this logo here, this part, just the right. MVP. Mm-hmm. We, we once we evolved, we made it more classier. We I put the, the on the side, emerging the bets and players aspect of it. But that's when we started calling emerging bets and players. I mean, it makes sense, right? It's pretty the emerging bets and players. That's what we're doing. Um, it could be called anything else, but now we're lucky enough to have hired twenty other people and uh, expanding across the United States very significantly, and. Showing vulnerability and vulnerability has helped so many people in our organization. We have over 2000 members now globally in our organization and, and have now have two virtual elements where we're able to reach people that if, even if you're in in your house and somewhere in Mexico or uh, South Africa, whatever, you can sit down or traveling, you can sit down and listen to each part of this program, which is a a very sincere, Program where you come in, there is nothing expected from you, just to be yourself and open up to each other. Workout piece, do the workout, which gets your your body, body and drilling gets you connected to that person that you're doing the group workout with. And then after that, you just talk about what some of the stuff that, that that goes through your head. You know, what is some accountability stuff you want to get through your be hold accountable for? A lot of us don't have people that hold accountable for. So MVP is a perfect place to do that. And I think. The magic of MVP starts with all our staff, right? It starts with us, starts with everybody. It doesn't start with a guy like Jay who says, a guy that a guy that's from Harvard or Stanford with the suit and tie, telling us or a therapist that tells us how we should how we should talk. We have been through the experiences and we're the ones that will help each other at the end. So I think that's why it makes MVP so ultimately so successful and I think
1: mm-hmm.
0: now we're starting to see more people support us because of that, because we we really generally care about people and, you know, I'm a success story of MVP and um, I only want the best MVP. That's kind of the reason why I ended up going from the Las Vegas program manager all the way to the, the chief operating officer. Well, of that was
1: my question. I mean, how does that progress go? Like at what, what point in time do you elevate from one job to another?
0: Yeah, I mean, the progress was like I said, it's uh, we were small. I mean, we were starting from the logo um, building the database, um, you know, because I had an IT background. I was able to build a lot of our our well, a lot of infrastructure, um, a lot of stuff that we created here. We didn't waste any money on IT. I can tell you that. Uh, <laughs> besides my time, uh, the hours that I spent on database and development, all that stuff, we didn't spend much at money. So we we weren't making very much money, right? As a five hundred one c three nonprofit, we were you know basically Jay was fun was was paying for the organization because we didn't have donors, we didn't have supporters, nobody nobody. Understood what MVP was. Right. Until we, we showed the world. We started doing videos. The platform that Jay has was incredible because it helped us expand to people where we, the reach we had was because of him. And when we.
1: And the Jay, for, for everybody listening, the Jay he's referring to is Jay Glazer of Fox Sports. And, uh. Yeah, it was
0: it. Because there's because because the platform, the platform we right. had the Nate sure. story, the vulnerability, showing Nate Denver's story to people showed their vulnerability and showed those athletes. Orin O'Neill being one of the first members. X Raiders of uh, 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 a fullback in the NFL showing that showing the world you know what they can what they what vulnerability really does what really is it after after when a athlete gets hurt and they throw him to the side like a trash I mean you're no longer good to us so here you go see you later pay attention get out of here all these people have been doing it for ever so going from that position going from as a program manager all the way to development direct fundraising, IT, doing everything in the organization. I really believed in the organization so much that I decided to finally move into a leadership position to expand MVP in the right direction because you know we 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 didn't have a plan to start MVP. We we thought that the room was just through the huddles was was enough. But it was not. We had to involve MVP to in between the huddle, beyond the huddle, yep. doing community service events, doing the events that that not like mission continues, we're doing service events. We're talking about events that engage the our, our people, our our demographics into the community, involving their families. Because when you're in the transition, your family's transition with you. You're not just transitioning on your own, your family are transitioning with you. Even though they're not combat veterans, they need they need that support. So we, the way we do is We create these events outside of MVP to bring those families and people that are not eligible for MVP because now combat veterans are not the only ones that suffer to mental health. Any veteran suffers to mental health. Any human being can suffer to mental health. Right. And that's the that's what we're trying to do. MVP is just trying to show us a voice to show that mental health and vulnerability. If you are vulnerable to people, more well more people or more audiences are willing to open up about mental health. And people didn't know about mental health until COVID hit. When COVID hit, people realized that mental health is 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 a very big problem. People to take their lives, kids were taking their lives because they didn't go to school, they didn't have that interaction with people. So it became a a, a first thing a, a lot of people foundations buying because they're like it really is uh, a hidden war that you don't see. All people want to do is see the outside wounds, missing an arm, missing a leg, whatever. And those are the people that want it. that's the image of MVP. I mean, not the image of MVP, I'm sorry. The image of of a person looking into a veteran, how broken they are, is based on how much injuries they're showing on the outside. But it's the internal wounds that that really define that person. A person is hurting. That person can look completely normal next week. He can kill himself. You know, so it's it's something we got to think about. And uh, you know, thanks, Mark, for having me on for sure. that's I mean, just talking about MVP and having you part of our staff is it's pretty remarkable, and you know we all believe in it. That's the reason why we do this. We don't collect a paycheck because we're here to collect a paycheck. You know, we don't get paid a lot amount of money here to do what we do. We do this because we're passionate and we care about people. But the only way you create accountability is you have to have re- job responsibility for people, and you, the way you do that is by paying organization, paying employees to to do what we do. But at the same time, bringing in the right people that want to do the exact same thing we do is help people just like us.
1: I mean, it's perfectly well said, you know, and again, and and I've said this repeatedly, you know, it's, it's, it's you, it's other people within the organization that really um, inspire me, you know, to, uh, to, to want to stay and want to continue to enrich the lives of those around me. I mean, you guys got such a passion for it. uh, And you you see that every day it's evident, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's plain as the, the nose on your face, so to speak, you know, when when it comes to how much you really believe in w- in what we're doing and, and the way it's helping people on a, on a day in day out basis. So you know, again, um, your leadership within within MVP has been off the charts, and it, it's part of the reason why the, the the organization is successful, and we're touching as many lives as we are. And uh, without you, man, you know, this kind of the, the whole house of cards falls, bro. I mean, that's that's just be me being real with you and, and, and the opportunity to work with you on a daily basis has been amazing. Um, you know, and, and it's great because, you know, peeling back the curtains a little bit for the audience, you know, it's, it's, it's not just work, you know, Noel picks up the phone and calls me and says, how you doing, man? I just wanted to check in, you know, I just want to see how you're doing. And I'm like, I'm fine. Like, it's just, it catches <laughs> yeah. me off guard sometimes. Cause I'm, I'm, like, I, I'm, I'm generally okay. Knock on wood. Like I'm generally, you know, <laughs> obviously I have my, my struggles and my mental health and everything else, but you know, it, it's. When somebody like that calls you to check in on you and it's not work and it's not business and it's not, hey, this needs to be done. It's just, hey, man, how are you? Um, that's one of the more uplifting things you can do. And I think all of us miss the opportunity to do that more often than not, just to check in and say, hey, how are you? I'm just thinking about you. I want to make sure you're okay. Um, and, and you know, that's it, – it, it, it's almost a microcosm of what MVP does, right? Each week it's just a check-in.
0: How are you? What are you doing? How yeah, are, are you doing? What, what, what what do you want to talk that about? Check-in, that check-in makes a difference. That check-in makes a difference from a person having a really bad day to making their to making their day better. Yeah. It's just that simple hi, hello, reaching out, text messages, that really makes a difference. My wife always tells me, Why do you invest so much time on texting people and like that? And like opening not time for us. You know, that person's really struggling. I heard them in the huddles talk about something. And people always, you know, they come to the MVP and they get intimidated. They come in and they go like the huddle, the workout, and They're like, what's an extreme couture? You know, where it's a, it's an unbreakable, they're top performers, athletes. You don't have to be a top athlete to be, I'm not in great shape myself. So it's just like, you have to like, the, the purpose of the whole thing is to get this, to get you to realize that whatever you're going through, you're not going through this alone. And you have other people to uplift you. And I think that's what people need to understand is that the, even if you show up to MVP once, where you're, it, just give it a try. You don't like it. You have nothing to lose. There's no benefits being taken out of the paycheck. There's no, there's no cab. There's nothing out of this. Everything is organic. You get automated. That's the reason why we take so long to respond sometimes because everything is organic. Everything we we don't do automation. I'm an IT guy. You think I don't like automation? Automate everything if want to. Anybody can send a newsletter and automate everything, but that's not what we do here. You know, we do everything personal, just like how you do Mark on email. You just spread out. Those are personal emails, and it makes a difference. Yeah. And, and, you know, just in the bigger context, you know, you talk
1: about the story that you had before with Denver and other people, you know, it's that uplifting moment where you just check in on something. You don't know how they're doing. They could be getting ready to go on a drive to go do something that they can't undo. And your phone call literally can change the course of those events. Um, and your check-in can literally change the course of those events. And I think that's never um something we can underscore, you know, so why why we need to take more time to do it. Well, you know, you guys can check it all out at vetsandplayers.org. Uh, and, and Noel is on there. You can read more about his bio and everything else. But, uh, you, you know, I love you, man. It's it's always great to talk to you. I, yeah. I love, you know, getting a chance to sit down with some of the MVP folks because you guys really are just some of the most genuine, honest, good people uh that I've ever been around um, and, and you're military folks like me. And so, you know, we kind of think on that same wavelength, but we understand each other on a different level. Uh, and And that dedication of life to service, I think, is super important as well.
0: Thanks, Mark. No, I appreciate you, man. Thanks for having me. Next, this is a good opportunity. Next, I don't do very. I don't really do any of podcasts. <laughs> no, as as you don't. You, you don't tell enough of your story. Yeah, you don't well, tell. Like, it. You know, I'm the guy behind the scenes. So I like, know. That's, but, what, you that's know, what I like to be. Uh, so. Millimeters
1: away from being dead is is worthwhile. Letting people know about sometimes.
0: Yeah, yeah, and like I said, it's, it's <laughs> something that we're all passionate for. So like, it's it's everything we have here is is about is about what we do, and and like I said, that. Uh, that mental health really, really gets to you if you let it bubble up and inside of you. You really have to be vulnerable, and I'm trying to teach that to my daughter right now, and my wife this is understanding that that you showing me your vulnerable side does not make you weak. I will not judge you based on that because I know how it feels to be judged like so many for so many years, and now that I realize what that is, like when people talk about mental health, it just it's like to me, I'm like, well, I'll tell you everything about my life, and maybe. You'll exp- maybe you're willing to tell me everything about your life, or well, how can I help you? It but you, you know it's funny when you talk about mental health. A lot of people are very fearful. They change a the conversation like this. Like I have a playing soccer team, and they once I try to talk about conversation about mental health, they go, uh, uh, "I don't know. Let's talk about something else." Yeah, exactly. they change the subject because it's it's it's, it's they're not gonna speak to, to a stranger like me, but. I can tell they have some kind of mental health aspect that they're, somewhere they have to share with somebody, but there's not one way to do it. So, but I mean, I, overall, I think for, for all this podcast, everything else just really gives a, a, a light to, to vulnerability and understanding that, uh, you know, that, uh, the uniform doesn't define who you are and it's what your ribcage, just like Jay says all the time, it's what the ribcage who defines you uh, of all the great work and all the stuff that you've done in your life to get to the top or get to the, be successful in life successful doesn't have to be being rich successful looks because you can look as having a great life with your family seeing them grow up to be great people just like you and I think that's that's all in marks
1: great words Noel Horta thank you being thank you so much for being part of the Hazard ground brother I appreciate it
0: thank you brother appreciate it you've been listening to killcliff's Hazard ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno if you have an interesting story to tell And you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.